Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on... In November 2011, uh, the sports world was absolutely rocked by the arrest of the famed Penn State assistant coach, Jerry Sandusky. Uh, in response to the, the, the very serious charges that he had faced... Um, for child sexual abuse, the board of trustees at Penn State University appointed an independent investigator to uh, examine the evidence for any wrongdoing uh, by either officials at the university, uh, including the legendary coach Joe Paterno, uh, university president Graham uh, Spanier, and athletic director Tim Curley. And this investigator was no slouch. He was a former federal judge and the former head of the FBI. And his team of investigators conducted over 400 interviews and had access to emails and documents uh, of officials in question. And the investigation lasted about seven months. And after about a month uh, after Sandusky was, was convicted and, and sent to prison, uh, the investigator held a press conference going over his findings from a 250-page report and according to that report, the most senior officials at Penn State had shown what he said was a total uh, and consistent disregard for the welfare of children, had worked together to actively conceal Mr. Sandusky's assaults, and had done so for one central reason, the fear of bad publicity. They didn't want the football program to look bad. They didn't want Penn State, who had a, a huge reputation for being uh, one of the most respected public institutions in the country. In other words, they knew about the, the child abuse, and they chose to do nothing. Instead, they chose to cover it, to lie about it, 
and pretend it didn't happen. The impulse to cover up the truth is no different in us than it is in those who have been charged with wrongdoing in very public cases. Uh, Never forget that the first and greatest impulse of any wrongdoer is to seek to justify himself, to discredit both the truth and those who speak it, and rather choose to believe a lie. Our, our text this morning was written by uh, a man who had been confronted with gross public sin. Like Jerry uh, Sandusky, he, he was a public figure, but on a much grander scale. He was the king of Israel, and perhaps the most powerful man in the world at that time, and he was on top of his game. And yet, just as happens with so many people when they encounter massive success and, and power, it corrupts. And uh, his lust got the best of him when he was on the rooftop of his palace one day and he was able to see a, uh, a neighbor woman bathing. And even though he clearly knew that this woman had a husband who served King David he still had his officials go and bring this woman into his house to sleep with her. And shortly after that, David got a message from her that she was pregnant. Now, obviously, this complicates things a little bit. So he devised a plan to have her husband come off the battle lines and and come home and, and, and lay with her on his furlough so that this illegitimate child that she was conceiving, he would believe that it was his and, and that we could just forget the matter and, 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 and move on. But when he refuses to do this, because he's a good guy, he doesn't want to leave his brothers out on the battlefield while he's at home with his wife. David then comes up with the plan to kill him, to order him to be on the front lines of battle where the action is going to be the heaviest so that undoubtedly you'll be killed in battle. Well, this husband dies and David goes and he marries this woman and perhaps all is going to be well, right? Well, not quite. The prophet Nathan comes to David with a message from God that lays bare all of David's sin, idolatry, covetousness, adultery, theft, murder, lying, and David is is cut to the core in his heart, and he bursted out, I have sinned against the Lord. And it is from there that we receive the 51st Psalm. You know, it's one thing to put it into its historical context. It's altogether another thing to apply it to our lives. When we sin, will we face the truth or will we attempt to cover it up? If we have sinned against God, will we face the truth or will we rationalize it? Will we justify ourselves and will we cover ourselves with self-deception? The Lord wants us to come clean today. And to do so, there are, are four things that, that he is showing us in his word. And the first one is, is that we need to regret continu- uh, genuinely. Regret genuinely. 
We've all experienced, or maybe we've even been that person, that uh, has, uh, has been given the highly emotional and uh, genuine uh, response of repentance when they've said, sorry, in a tone such as that. Um, or maybe we've given that apology that takes no responsibility for our actions. Well, man, I'm really sorry that you're hurt over this. There's no hint of that in David's words. In verses 1 and 2, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. These are not the words from someone who simply wants to escape the consequences of what he has done. This is a person who is owning it. This is a person who, who knows whom it is that he is, he is offended. And it's a person that wants to genuinely change. It's a man who is biblically repenting and coming to grips with our thoughts and our words and our behaviors is hard. We want to avoid it. And coming to the point in which we have genuine repentance, dare I say, it's impossible. It takes a work of God to get us to that point. The Holy Spirit has to convince our soul that something is not right, not just on a horizontal level, which is where a lot of us leave it, but also uh, more, more uh, specifically on a vertical level with God. And so David appeals to the only source that he knows that can absolve his guilt. This prophet Nathan can do absolutely nothing about it. He can't go to a priest, go into a confessional and confess his sins and be absolved from it. No, he rather goes to the Lord. And you wouldn't see it necessarily in the translation that I used here today, but he appeals to God's character in three ways. He recognizes God as merciful, as loving, and as compassionate. He appeals to these characteristic traits of God in three ways. He asks them to blot out his transgressions, wash him thoroughly, and cleanse him. We'll get more into that here uh, in a bit, but notice that he also appeals to God's character in these three ways, to receive three things. And three things that are true of himself. He has transgressed God's law, which means he's rebelled. He is full of iniquity, which means he is plainly guilty. And he is sinful, meaning that he has missed the mark. How many of us approach our sins, our failures, our moral mistakes in such a way? We live in a culture today that wants absolutely nothing to do with personal responsibility for our actions. We want to blame anyone and anything rather than ourselves when we have done something. Instead of saying, I screwed up and I'm sorry. We want to say, you know what? She made me do it. She forced me to do it. We want to say, it wasn't me. Well, I, I, I had to do that. That's how I was raised up. I don't know any other way. It's just so much easier on the conscience 
to make excuses and push it away. When we're pricked in the heart, when we're confronted what we've thought, said, and done, we need to resist with everything that we have the inclination to run or fight against our consequences and what we've done. Instead, we, we must submit to the regret and the remorse and appeal to the one who has abundant love and mercy and compassion, our great God. But second of all, we need to reveal our heart honestly. Reveal your heart honestly. In an October of 2014 interview with Vanity Fair, uh, comedian Bill Murray was asked if he was ready to get back on the dating scene after having a very, very painful divorce back in 2009. And his response was candid and shows a level of self-awareness that we often don't see in the public sphere anymore, especially someone from a comedian that is not uh, a, a believer uh, in, uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that he wasn't ready to get back on the dating scene yet. Uh, he said, there's a lot that I'm doing that I need to do. And when uh, specifically asked about what he's missing in his life, he said, you know, just something like working on yourself or self-development or, or something. I don't have a problem connecting with people. My issue is connecting with myself. If I'm really not committing myself to that, then it's better that I don't have another, a different person in my life. What stops any of us, he said, is that we're kind of really ugly if we look really hard. We are not who we think we are. We're not as wonderful as we think we are, and it's a bit of a shock. It's hard. Now David writes in verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And when you begin to come to grips with your sin, it's very, very hard to escape. It, it dominates your mind and your conscience. Some of us lose sleep over it. And we often think of guilt as a bad thing, and guilt can be a bad thing if we let it fester and we let it uh, go in, in directions that it shouldn't, or we're feeling guilty about something that uh, is not necessary. But guilt is in itself a gift from God to tell us that something is wrong. It's like a smoke detector in the middle of the night. The guilt is that alarm going off in our soul saying something is wrong here. David goes on in verse 4 to the true root of his offense against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this brings up a legitimate question. Is this neglecting justice for the abused here? Is this neglecting the justice that is due to Bathsheba and to her husband? How could she have felt safe to say no when the most powerful man in the world brought her over to his house, into his bedroom? Didn't he, didn't he sin against Uriah, her husband, when he committed adultery, tried to set him up uh, with an illegitimate child, and then ended up murdering him? Are we not doing justice to these people by saying that God and God only have I sinned? It's hard to know exactly what David is getting at. But here's my best guess, and this is purely speculation. 
I think that David realized that yes, he did sin horribly against another couple. But he also knew that God is the voice for the voiceless. He is the one who will vindicate the cause of the innocent. He is the one who will render judgment. And so, in an ultimate sense, because God is the giver of life and the arbiter of law and justice, it is him that our offense ultimately rides on. That's why David continues in verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. And the same is for you and I. Whether it's that petty little white lie or uh, that we say to, to maybe make ourselves look better or the, uh, maybe the exaggeration that we use to make something look greater than it is or maybe it's the unkind word that we've used to hurt another individual or the lust we have for someone else who isn't our spouse or the gossip that we have to uh, destroy someone's character or the malice that we create in order to uh, do it even more so. Ultimately, it is God who will have the final say. It is God who is the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And David goes on to admit that this action isn't an isolated incident. It flows from out of the person that he is. Uh, there is this age-old debate, and it's a fascinating debate, on whether people are inherently good or bad. And it, it, it's such a black-and-white question that it's hard to answer. But if we were to reword it, I would be interested to see what the majority of people would answer if we asked people, do you think that people are born with a sinful condition or they gain sinful condition as they go throughout their, uh, their existence? Uh, if I were to guess, I would think most of our culture would take the view of what us theologians call Pelagianism, which is a belief that people are born good, but as they grow up and experience sin and live in the world, well, then they just sort of start taking on sin for themselves and their behavior. And that view has historically been considered wrong because the biblical view is that we are sinners both by choice and by nature. And we see this when we get into verse 5, and David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David is not saying here that he was conceived illegitimately here. He, uh, what he is getting at is the truth that every one of us is born a sinner by nature. At the moment of conception, we inherit this nature. R.C. Sproul put it very well when he said, We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, that from out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's not just limited to our words. Our actions and our thoughts and our behaviors all flow from what is inside of us. So what do we do? We acknowledge this truth about us. Our sins are not just mistakes that leaped out of a good nature. We need to come to grips with reality. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. 
So not only does God want us to acknowledge our uh, condition honestly, but also he also provides the help that we need. It says, he teaches us wisdom in the secret heart, which we'll get to in a moment. But first we need to look at the third point, which is we need to request boldly. Request boldly. When we come clean with our thoughts and words and behaviors, we need to cling to the one who can make us whole again. And David uses all kinds of Old Testament imagery uh, in order to plead with God. Verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be made clean. Hyssop is this uh, porous kind of plant that was often used for uh, purification in, in Israel. It was the kind of plant that they uh, dipped into the lamb's blood at the Exodus and wiped it over the doorpost so that the angel of death would, would pass over them. Verse 7 continues, wash me and I shall be uh, whiter than snow. Ritual bathing and cleansing was sort of symbolic for, uh, for ancient Jews. In fact, when David saw Bathsheba from the rooftop, it says that she was ritualistically cleansing herself. So this isn't out of the ordinary. And think about the result. I shall be whiter than snow. One of the most beautiful scenes that, that uh, we can see during the winter is a fresh blanket of snow that has not been touched by man or animal yet. You walk outside and the sun is shining on it. It's almost like blinding. There are times this past winter that I took my dog out that I had to like have my eyes seriously squinted or closed for a little bit until even like my eyes could adjust to that. And then open up and see the brilliance of the, the beauty of the snow. It's so pure. And here David is crying out that God would make his soul like that scene that we see in the winter. Now verse 9 is really interesting. He says, hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. He's not asking God to turn a blind eye, but rather to heal him and to move on. Don't leave me, God. But Leave your indignation on my sin. Further notice, he says, blot out my transgressions. Now, here's a little exercise. What I want you to do is I want you to look down at the carpet for just a moment. That's a pretty nice looking carpet, isn't it? 30 years of use. Faded. Some of you over in that section might be seeing some carpet that is tearing at some of the seams. Some of you are really lucky and you can see one of our many beautiful stains that are on the floor. Some of them are 30 years old. It's gross. It's nasty. And we're coming up with a plan to replace it, just so you know. Well, we're trying to figure all that out, but it takes time and it takes money. But let me tell you about those stains. They don't come out. We have tried everything. We've blotted, we've wiped, we've used every chemical that, will, that won't burn through the carpet or change the color of the carpet. We have had professionals come in that have claimed that there's no stain on this planet that they cannot get up. Well, we prove that they're false advertising. These stains aren't coming out. The only way to get these stains up is to rip it out and get a completely new carpet. And I am convinced that there are people, perhaps here this morning, that feel like this carpet. 
You've got some deep stains. You've spilled some things in your life and you've tried everything that you can to get rid of it. You've got a spiritual rug doctor. You've ordered those chemicals off of QVC that seem so promising. And yet you're here feeling ugly, hopeless, guilty, and helpless. And you're right. Every single one of us is like this carpet. When we try to blot out our own sin and our own transgression, it only makes it worse. And we're left with a carpet that looks a lot like this one. The only hope for this carpet is to tear it out and put a new one down. And the only hope that we have is to have this old heart ripped out and replaced with a brand new one. And that's exactly what David asked for in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart. He's not saying just cleanse it up. He's saying, give me a totally new one. Make a new one and give it to me. God, renew a right spirit within me. And because a complete transplant is exactly what we need, it is a new heart that God gives us when we come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It's then that verse 12 says that we're restored to the joy of our salvation. We have a spirit that wants to please God. So whatever you're feeling, whatever you're dealing with, go to God. Lay it out there. Request boldly and finally respond appropriately respond appropriately when we experience genuine remorse and uh, we get honest with ourselves about our, our sin and go to God and that new heart ought to result in life change it should, so, it should show up in more than three ways but this is the three ways that David talks about evangelism praise, and commitment. First, our response ought to result in evangelism. God's love should not help but spew out of our soul and our spirit when we realize the depths of where we've been and the greatness of where God's pulled us out of through Jesus Christ and through faith. Now, we can't help but tell other people about it. Verse 13 says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. I love what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That should put compassion in our hearts. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And get this. But such were some of you. 
but you were, sancti- you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The implication is that we were once dead in our sins. God made us alive. We are not who we used to be, and we should be joyful then about what we've experienced to help other people experience it. And further, the blessing of brokenness should result in praise. Verse 14 says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing loud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and I shall declare your praise. That is what a deep understanding of the faith and a practical application leads to. Being unashamed of the gospel If I had nearly drowned in a pool and a lifeguard pulled me out and brought me back to life, you better bet that I'd be praising them for the work that they did in my life. And how much uh, more so is God from saving us from our sin and eternal hell? God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of rearranging our schedules so that we can spend time with him. He is worthy of... uh, making Sunday mornings a priority to worship him with fellow believers. He is worthy of our devotion and commitment. And the last thing that David writes in verse 16, uh, as far as these three things go, he says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, he says, God, I, I love you so much that if there's anything that I could do, anything at all to make things right with you, I would do it. However, anything that I would try wouldn't be pleasing to you because you've already given the perfect sacrifice in Christ Jesus. And now because I trust in him, he's saying, here's my heart. That's all I got. The sacrifices of God are a broken Spirit, our broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So how often do you go through life with a broken spirit? Not a woe is me, I'm so terrible, I just, uh, you know, down on yourself sort of countenance but one that constantly recognizes your propensity towards pride and self-sufficiency and God's goodness to forgive and continually renew. It makes us feel so weak, but that's exactly where God wants us. We need to respond evangelistically with a a lifestyle of praise and a sold-out commitment to giving God our heart and giving God our everything in our life. For our Lord who gave his everything for us. You know, for some reason, it is impossible for human beings to walk straight. At least that's what German scientist Jan Selman concluded. He says that there's there's just something about our inner orientation that causes us to walk crooked or in a warped way. And Salomon came to that conclusion after uh, doing an experiment on people in which he blindfolded his subjects and had them walk in a straight line for an hour. (laughs) Without exception, 
People couldn't do it. Uh, also, without exception, every one of them thought that they had nailed it <laughs> until they got their blindfold taken off. And they saw the wrong directions that they had gone. This tendency has been studied for at least a century. And it's been replicated in swimmers with the same result. In videos of it, you can see them going in, not just, you know, veering off, but strange loop-de-loops in either direction. But there's a trick, according to this researcher, and that there's only one way to walk in a straight line. And that is by focusing on something in front of you, like a building or a landmark or a mountain. If we can fix our eyes on something ahead of us, we can make ourselves avoid a normally crooked path. Many of us are walking through life on our crooked path with a guilty uh, conscience or maybe suppressed guilt, thinking that we are walking in a straight line. But when we come to grips with our moral failures and, and the carnage that we create because of them, and we confess our sin, we cry out to God, and we respond, he gives us something in front of us by which we can get back on track. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who lived perfectly for us who died sacrificially for us, who rose to provide a future for us. There is a blessing in brokenness, and his name is Jesus. And if you would like to put your trust in him today, or maybe come back to him today, and get back on the straight road and receive forgiveness, you can do that. And if that's you, as I pray, I would invite you to pray along with me and seek one of us out to help guide you in your newfound faith or your rediscovered faith. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more content, be sure to subscribe. If you like what you've heard, consider partnering with us in our mission. Text the word, GIVE to 320-313-1950.